What's that up ahead, cutting through the fog? It's a beacon of common sense. We must be getting close to the Liberty Lighthouse. Very close to the Liberty Lighthouse. Welcome, my fellow patriots and freedom fighters. Today, we are going to be continuing on our part two of the U.S. Constitution as explained by me, a layman. Reading the Constitution, explaining it in layman's terms, making sure that everybody understands their constitutional rights, but... Before we continue on the process, I missed something last week. We had talked about the three-fifths compromise. We went to commercial break. I came back from the commercial break, and I forgot a huge part of that argument. So why don't we uh, you know, finish all this intro crap and then get going? You have just entered the Liberty Lighthouse, your beacon of common sense. Join the conversation in the chat room at MeWe.com. Polar text 64 my rights. That's 646 974 Or tweet the hashtag Liberty Lighthouse. That's right. Call or text 64 my rights. Tweet hashtag Liberty Lighthouse. Support the show by becoming a supporter at libertylighthouse.locals.com. For $2 a month at locals.com, you get all of these episodes of the Liberty Lighthouse. You get them early. You get them without ads. You get my Liberty Minutes that I do five mornings a week, 60-second news headlines. You also get insider stuff a discount on the liberty lighthouse store and so much more uh so last week we started this series on explaining the u.s constitution we got to through the first segment of the show at the the three-fifths compromise about the census and how we were going to count slaves we went on commercial break and and when we came back I, i forgot some really important stuff so let's start by backtracking a little bit, fill it in that hole. So the, uh, the, the Constitution's written. They say they're going to have a census within three years. And then every 10 years after that, all free people and people, uh, indentured servants, people you know, bound to service for a number of years, were to be counted as a whole person. Indians were not to be counted at all. And slaves were to be counted as three-fifths of a person. Now, if you talk to one of your progressive liberal friends, they're liable to tell you that the three-fifths compromise is, was, was proof and evidence of the inherent racism of our country. As a matter of fact, I have told people that I think the U.S. Constitution is one of the most important, I mean, one of the most perfect documents ever written, and I've had people say, so you think black people or slaves are only worth three-fifths of a person? Okay, let's. I'm going to teach you right now how to just destroy that argument, how to, how to cripple anybody who puts that argument up. The three-fifths compromise was about how people were counted in the census, for one. That was it. It was just how they were tallied in the census. 
And what was the census being used for? The census was being used to determine how many representatives a state got in Congress. So, had slaves been counted as a whole person, then all of the slaveholding states would have gotten more representation in Congress. They would have had more control in the House of Representatives. Ending slavery would have been even more impossible because of those states having so much more power. The three-fifths compromise that counted slaves as three-fifths of a person for the census was one of the best things that could have ever happened to slavery at that point in history. Abolishing slavery in, 18, in 1787 was out of the question, wasn't going to happen. As many of the people that were at the Continental Congress wanted it to happen, it was never going to happen. We would never have had a constitution. We would never have had 13 united colonies had that been written into the constitution. Half of the country would not have signed it. Half of it would not have ratified the constitution. The three-fifths compromise allowed the slaves to be counted a little, thereby uh, appeasing the slave states, but did not allow them to be counted as full people, thereby not allowing the slave states to get more power and control. So that was what I felt like I missed last week. That was a, I don't know what happened during the commercial break. Apparently my brain turned off because that is one of the biggest arguments that can be made about the three-fifths compromise. So where we are now is Article 1, Section 9. Section 9. The migration or importation of such persons, as any of the states now existing, shall think proper to admit, shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808. But a tax or duty may be imposed on such importation, not exceeding $10 for each person. Okay, so states are allowed to still allow people to come into the state. They're still allowing immigration. And Congress is not going to do anything to stop it, at least until um, 1888. But there, there can be a tax on immigration, but not to exceed $10. Now, remember how much $10 was in, in 1787. The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when, in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. Of course, that was done by Abraham Lincoln. One of the things that uh, many people point at Abraham as, as crossing the line and going too far. No bill of attainder or ex post facto law shall be passed. No capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. No tax or duty shall be laid on... Okay, sorry, I didn't get to stop that in time. Let's go back. Uh, no uh, cap, uh, capitalization or direct tax shall be laid. That line is what made the... Uh, income tax unconstitutional oh three times our government tried to pass 
income tax in the United States of America. Three times it made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and three times it was judged unconstitutional. So, in 1913, with the passage of the 16th Amendment, they were allowed income tax. And hey, oh, by the way, 1913 is also about the time that our uh, country was going through the first progressive movement and our country's government was starting to grab crazy power. So then, no tax or duty shall be laid on articles exported from any state is what's next. I think that's where we were. On articles exported from any state. No preference shall be given by any regulation of commerce or revenue to the ports of one state over those of another, nor shall vessels bound to or from one state be obliged to enter, clear, or pay duties in another. Okay, so this is the part where the federal government regulates commerce between the states, right? So no tax or duty shall be laid on articles exported from any one state, and no preference shall be given uh, by any regulation of commerce or revenue from one state to another or one port to another. No money shall be drawn from the treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law, and a regular statement and account of the receipts and expenditures of all public money shall be published from time to time. That is something that our government is really not that great at doing anymore. So what this is saying is that no money shall be drawn from the treasury, but by consequence of appropriations made by law. Now remember, law is something that went through the House of Representatives and through the Senate and was signed by the president. That's a law. That's the only way money can be spent in our federal government. And they have to report it. They have to... to, uh, uh, published an account of, of, of uh, receipts and expenditures on a, was it, uh, from time to time. They might do that, but it's so ridiculously convoluted that we can't understand it anymore as people. This is a problem. We are $27 trillion in debt. We are spending money like it's rain falling from the sky and there's no accountability as far as we the people are concerned because they don't have to show us what that is so there's there's organizations out there that try to find that where this money is all going there's organizations that publish like the pig book which is a great great resource if you're really interested in it's to where the government spends money that points out the the hundreds of billions of dollars in wasteful spending every year but the, the government itself, it, it's, it's not a clear reporting of where money goes. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States. And no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind whatever from any king, prince, or foreign state. 
okay, so you'll never have a, you know, uh, Sir Elton John in Congress. Not that Elton John's a citizen. But anyway, so no title shall be, no title of nobility shall be given by the United States. I've said this before. When you bestow a title upon somebody because the office they hold, Secretary Clinton, for example, and then continue to call them by that title, Secretary Clinton, for example, long after they have left that office, Secretary Clinton, for example, it's it's de facto nobility. Once you leave that office, that's not your title anymore. You have to put former in front of it. Otherwise, you're unconstitutional. I mean, it just said right there. But we do it pretty regularly. Section 10. Section 10. No state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, grant letters of mark and reprisal, coin money, emit bills of credit, make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts, pass any bill of attainder, ex post facto law, or law impairing the obligation of contracts, or grant any title of nobility. Okay, so at the time the Constitution was written, every state had their own currency. And some of those states, you know, they had debt from the Revolutionary War. They were printing money like crazy to try to pay off the debt. There were some states that were near bankruptcy because of this mess, there were, there were people high in, in office that were taking advantage of this mess. So this law was written, was passed, this um, Article 1, Section 10, so that no state can make money anymore unless they make it out of gold or silver. The gold standard. You can't manipulate how much gold or silver is worth. It is worth whatever it's worth based on a global market something that we should seriously consider trying to find a way to get back to. No state shall, without the consent of the Congress, lay any imposts or duties on imports or exports, except what may be absolutely necessary for executing its inspection laws. And the net produce of all duties and imposts laid by any state on imports or exports shall be for the use of the Treasury of the United States. And all such laws shall be subject to the revision and control of the Congress. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power, or engage in war, unless actually invaded, or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. So basically taking away the state's rights to, uh, to, to declare war and to, and to act as independent nations. They're not allowed to have treaties with other states. They're not allowed to have treaties with other countries. They're not allowed to keep an army. They're not allowed to declare war. This is all things that have to go through Congress now. These are all parts of the federal government now. So that, that brings us to the end 
of Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution. Article 1 laid out what Congress can do and what states can no longer do that the Congress is responsible for. So Article 2 is about the creation of the executive branch of government, the president. And, you know, I said that the entire formation of our government, the entire Constitution was one huge compromise. There were many of the 55 members at the Constitutional Convention that did not want an executive. There were many of them that thought that an executive would be nothing more than a king. But there were many other ones that wanted an executive, and some of those wanted an executive with the power of a king. So the, the, uh, the executive branch of government was a compromise. Yes, we can have an executive, but we're going to restrict how much power he has, and we're going to spell that all out in Article 2. So that is uh, another, that's what, we had the great compromise about the two houses of Congress. We had the three-fifths compromise about how to count slaves. We had the compromise of whether or not the Constitution needed a preamble. Now we've got a compromise of whether or not we need a president. Article 2. Section 1. The executive power shall be vested in a President of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years, and, together with the Vice President, chosen for the same term, be elected as follows. Each State shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors, equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. But no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. The elector... Hold on just there for a second. Let's clarify for, uh, for a second. This is the Electoral College we're talking about. States define, decide how to appoint their electors. The Constitution spells out how many electors they get, the same as they have representatives and senators together. But it, the Constitution does not say how they have to be appointed or divided or whatever. And that's very, very important, especially when you ta start talking about popular vote versus uh, Electoral College vote. And... When you look at Maine and Nebraska, who apportion their electoral college votes, where every other state is all or nothing. So the Constitution doesn't say how a state has to appoint these electors. The Constitution doesn't say that it has to be all or nothing. The national popular vote argument is that states that are small numbers of electors or states with small populations or states that always vote one way or another, uh, the Electoral College is bad for anybody in all of those states. Therefore, the Electoral College needs to go away and we should go by the popular vote. My argument is, it is your state law who has chosen to award your state's electors all or nothing. That is the problem. The Electoral College itself is perfect. Your state maybe shouldn't have an all-or-nothing. 
that would fix the problems of that the national popular vote com, uh, interstate compact is arguing that they're trying to fix. Electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for two persons, of whom one at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. And they shall make a list of all the persons voted for, and of the number of votes for each, which list they shall sign and certify, and transmit sealed to the seat of the government of the United States, directed to the President of the Senate. The President of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all the certificates, and the vote shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes shall be the President, if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed. And if there be more than one who have such majority, and have an equal number of votes, then the House of Representatives shall immediately choose by ballot one of them for President. And if no person have a majority, then from the five highest on the list, the said House shall in like manner choose the President. But in choosing the President, the vote shall be taken by states, the representation from each state having one vote. A quorum for this purpose shall consist of a member or members from two-thirds of the states, and a majority of all the states shall be necessary to a choice. In every case, after the choice of the president, the person having the greatest number of votes of the electors shall be the vice-president, but if there should remain two or more who have equal votes, the Senate shall choose from them by ballot the vice-president. Okay, so that was all changed by the 12th Amendment. However, there's a couple of things there that are still true. Um, interesting to note that, uh, you know, back then, before the 12th Amendment, you didn't have a running mate. You ran for president. If you got the most votes and had a majority, you became president. If you had the second most votes, you became vice president. So it was not uncommon to have a, uh, a president and vice president of two different parties, which i got to say, I kind of like that idea right now. Anyway, um, the part that did not change, the part that's really important to notice is if the election goes to the House, the House votes by state. Each state gets one vote. It is not by population. It's not by the number of representatives or the number of districts. Each state gets one single solitary vote. That part is still true, even though the rest of it was all changed by the 12th Amendment. The Congress may determine the time of choosing the electors and the day on which they shall give their votes, which day shall be the same throughout the United States. That day has been fixed to the you know, second Wednesday in December or some crap like that um, by Congress. So that's the drop-dead date for all of this nonsense, lawsuits, etc. going on in our current election. The, the states have to send their electors to Congress. They have to send those votes by the, th the date 
that the, the electoral college votes, and uh, that's that's well, it happens when it happens. And there's the music. So this shall be the breaking point of the first segment of this episode of Liberty Lighthouse. I don't know about you, but my brain can only take so much logic at once. Luckily, it's time for a break. We'll be back in two minutes. the founders intended mojo 50 let me tell you about a new company with values that you can really get behind patriot energy is a new veteran-owned company doing solar the right way take advantage of government incentives and, and cut your electric bill by 30 to 40 percent while buying your own system with no money down Support a veteran-owned company, help the environment, and save money. Go to PatriotEnergyAZ.org slash Mojo50 for an estimate. You have choices when it comes to energy. Let Patriot Energy help you make the right choice for you. PatriotEnergyAZ.org slash Mojo50. This Second Amendment moment is brought to you by Hunter's Warehouse at 130 West High Street in downtown Belfont, Pennsylvania. When the government was closing businesses, Hunter's Warehouse was open. When ammunition was out of stock everywhere, including online, Hunter's Warehouse had it. With thousands of firearms and truckloads of ammunition in stock, no wonder people drive for hours to visit Hunter's Warehouse. Go to Hunter'sWarehouse.net for all of your Second Amendment needs. Hi, I'm Peter Seraphine, host of the Liberty Lighthouse. I first got involved with politics when I wrote a short book, Progress Really? Progress Really? is a quick read about the past, current, and future state of our progressive society. I was so frustrated with progressive society and progressive government, I had to do something. I didn't write the book for fame or fortune, so I priced it as low as possible, and pledged all of my profit to the Convention of States project. So whether the 99-cent ebook or the $5 paperback, your purchase supports the COS project. Go to liberty-lighthouse.com and click on the books link. Read my short warning about when progress just stops being progress and support the COS project. I urge every liberty-loving American to go to liberty-lighthouse.com, click the books link, and buy a copy of Progress Really? The most powerful gathering of freedom fundamentalists since Philadelphia in 1776. Mojo 50. Welcome back to the Liberty Lighthouse, the beacon of common sense and logic. Welcome back indeed. We are on the Constitution of the United States. In Article 2, Section 1. And uh, we're just going to keep trucking along. 
No person, except a natural-born citizen, or a citizen of the United States, at the time of the adoption of this Constitution, shall be eligible to the office of President. Neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall not have attained to the age of thirty-five years, and been fourteen years a resident within the United States. In case of the removal of the President from office, or of his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve on the Vice-President, and the Congress may by law provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability, both of the President and Vice-President, declaring what officer shall then act as President, and such officer shall act accordingly, until the disability be removed, or a President shall be elected. The President shall, at stated times, receive for his services a compensation, which shall neither be increased nor diminished during the period for which he shall have been elected. And he shall not receive within that period any other emolument from the United States or any of them. Okay, uh, back to where it said, in the case of removal of the president from office and his death, resignation, etc., etc., uh, that was altered by the 25th Amendment. We will get to that later. Uh, interesting that the president's salary cannot change during his term of office. That was actually added to Congress as well, where their salary does not change. Even if they vote themselves a raise, they don't get that raise until after the next election. Before he enter on the execution of his office, he shall take the following oath or affirmation. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. That is the only job specified in that oath. It's also, you know, to join the military. I do solemnly swear or affirm to, uh, to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. To join any of the veterans organizations like the American Legion, you say the, the support the defend the United States Constitution. All of these people in all of these offices have sworn an oath to protect the Constitution of the United States first and foremost before anything else, before their party, before their constituents, before the people above them in jobs. The Constitution is what you swear your oath to. I swore that oath for the first time on December 31st, 1990, 15 days before our country knew we were going to war. I take my oath very seriously. I have never disavowed that oath. I have repeated that oath many, many times over the years of my life. I take it very seriously and I always will. Unfortunately, 
there's a whole lot of people that we elect into office that do not think that dis- supporting and defending the Constitution means the same thing that you and I probably think it means. Section 2, Article 2, Section 2. Section 2. The President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, and of the militia of the several states, when called into the actual service of the United States. He may require the opinion, in writing, of the principal officer in each of the executive departments, upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective offices, and he shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. So he's the commander. He shall have power, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, to make treaties, provided two-thirds of the senators present concur. And he shall nominate, and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States, whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law. But the Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers, as they think proper, in the President alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. Okay, so, Congress, Senate, the Senate has to approve the president, many of the presidential appointments, but they have, the Congress has the authority to waive that approval or to move it on to some other body. So, for example, if Congress decided that the Senate Judiciary Committee was all that was needed to approve uh, federal judges, then they can pass a law that says that that's all that has to happen. It doesn't have to go before the full Senate. Notice that the appointments require a two-thirds majority of the Senate. Why do you think that was done? Why would you require a two-thirds majority for confirmation of these different offices? Could it be because they were afraid of partisanship? Many of our founding fathers were very afraid of a two-party system that we ended up with. And if you look at the news today, you can completely understand why they may be afraid of it. The president shall have power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their next session. Section 3. He shall, from time to time, give to the Congress information of the State of the Union, and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. He may, on extraordinary occasions, convene both houses, or either of them, and in case of disagreement between them, with respect to the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper. 
he shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers. He shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed, and shall commission all the officers of the United States. He shall take care that the law is is executed, is faithfully executed. Uh, the President of the United States is the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. It's right there. The President shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. That's pretty clear. Section 4. Section 4. The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Treason, bribery, high crimes, and misdemeanors. Not because you like didn't like the way a phone call went. Not because you just don't like the guy. Treason, bribery, high crimes, and misdemeanors. That's it. That's the only reason to impeach anybody, let alone the President of the United States. So, we that was the end of Article 2. So that's the presidency as far as the Constitution is concerned. It's not a whole lot there. Because our President was not supposed to be ridiculously powerful, was not supposed to be writing executive orders every time they turn around and changing the way the world is by executive order. That's not their job. I need a little bit of a break. How about you? I think it's time for, well, let's just call it a commercial. Do you feel that your neighbors should pay for your overpriced, worthless college degree? Do you think some guns should be banned just because they look scary? Do you believe the phrase all lives matter is racist, but black lives matter is social justice? Are fascist tactics acceptable when used for anti-fascist causes? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you may be one of the almost 50% of Americans suffering from a disease known as liberal progressivism. Recognizing the early warning signs is the key to recovery. A few of the early warning signs are feeling offended by 100-year-old statutes, the desire to silence opposing opinions, and blindly following edicts without question. There is hope. A complete recovery may still be possible. A little pill called liberty is the key to healing. Combine liberty in a cocktail of common sense and personal responsibility, and liberal progressivism is reversible. Liberal progressivism is a serious disease and should be treated immediately. This message brought to you by the Founding Fathers in conjunction with the United States Constitution. The United States of America is the greatest country in the history of the world. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love doing those, those little parodies. Um, if you are a subscriber at Locals.com, you had access to that uh, a few days ago when I first made it. It makes me laugh every time I do it. So I, I, I just think it's funny. If you don't like my parody, I'm sorry, but I think parody is funny. Ah, so moving on. Where are we? We're on the U.S. Constitution, Article 3. Article 3. Section 1. Section 1. The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court, and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, 
shall hold their offices during good behavior, and shall, at stated times, receive for their services a compensation. Good behavior. Judges do not have life tenure. They have tenure during good behavior. I think that's an important distinction, given that their oath is to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, just like everybody else. The judicial power shall extend to all cases, in law and equity, arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made, or which shall be made, under their authority, to all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, between citizens of the same state, claiming lands under grants of different states, and between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states, citizens or subjects. Some of that was in all cases by the 11th affecting Amendment. ambassadors, we'll other public ministers and consuls, and those in which a state shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In all the other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction, both as to law and fact, with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. The trial of all crimes, except in cases of impeachment, shall be by jury, and such trial shall be held in the state where the said crimes shall have been committed. But when not committed within any state, the trial shall be at such place or places as the Congress may, by law, have directed. All makes perfect sense to me so far. What do you think? Section 3. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them, or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act, or on confession in open court. Okay, so treason is so serious that you have to have two witnesses that witness the exact same act in order for there to be considered a conviction. Good to know. The Congress shall have power to declare the punishment of treason, but no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture except during the life of the person attained. That's Article 3, the Judiciary of the United States Article of America. Article 4. Section 1. Full faith and credit shall be given in each state to the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings of every other state, and the Congress may, by general laws, prescribe the manner in which such acts, records, and proceedings shall be proved, and the effect thereof. Okay. 
All states are equal. Section 2. The citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. A person charged in any state with treason, felony, or other crime, who shall flee from justice and be found in another state, shall on demand of the executive authority of the state from which he fled, be delivered up to be removed to the state having jurisdiction of the crime. So you can't flee to a state that doesn't have uh, extradition rights. All states must, by law, by the Constitution, give criminals over to the state where they committed said crime. Good to know if you're a criminal. No person held to service or labor in one state, under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. Obviously changed by the 13th Amendment, ending slavery and indentured servitude. Section 3. New states may be admitted by the Congress into this union, but no new state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state, nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states, or parts of states, without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned, as well as of the Congress. Okay, I think that's another argument that says that Washington, D.C. can't be a state. Washington, D.C. is a district that was made by the surrounding states forfeiting that land over to the federal government. So, in order for a uh, Congress to make Washington, D.C. a state, which our liberal friends are trying to do because Washington, D.C. is so progressive, the legislatures of each of those states that forfeited that land would have to would have to agree to it, as well as Congress and all of the other uh, problems, parts. I just think it says it can't be done. I mean, no state can be admitted that is part of another state, and that's how Washington, D.C. was made. So I don't think we really have to worry about that. I think that even if it's tried, it will be kicked out by the Supreme Court. The Congress shall have power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States. And nothing in this Constitution shall be so construed as to prejudice any claims of the United States or of any particular state. So Congress can make rules and regulations. Duh. Section 4. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this Union a republican form of government, and shall protect each of them against invasion, and on application of the legislature, or of the executive, when the legislature cannot be convened, against domestic violence. Oh look, the federal government can do that. That's article 5. End of Article 4. Now starting Article 5, obviously. The Congress, 
whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or, on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which, in either case, shall be valid to all intents and purposes, as part of this Constitution, when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states, or by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress. Provided that no amendment, which may be made prior to the year 1808, shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses in the ninth section of the first article, and that no state, without its consent, shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. Okay, so uh, I think we need to do some clarification there. Is anybody aware of the Convention of States project? Do you know what the COS project is? Well, the COS project is is a nonprofit group pushing for an Article 5 Convention of States. So you just heard there are two ways to amend the Constitution of the United States. The first way, the common way, the only way that it's been done so far in the history of this great republic is that proposed amendment goes through Congress, gets two-thirds of the votes in both houses of Congress, then goes to the states to be ratified by at least three-quarters of the states. Okay, that's how it's usually done. A convention of states is just what it sounds like. It's a meeting of representatives from all of the states for the purpose, the sole purpose, of of, uh, uh, putting forth amendments, suggesting, proposing, that's the word I was looking for, proposing amendments to the Constitution. So, (coughs) pardon me, a convention of states would propose amendments to the Constitution that no longer have to get the two-third majority in Congress. They have to get the majority at the convention. Then, those same proposed amendments still have to be ratified by three-quarters of the states. And that's the important part to think about. They still have to be ratified by three-quarters of the states. So if one of the biggest arguments against a convention of states is that the, the states will get together and instead of proposing things within the confines of what they're supposed to be talking about, they'll propose amendments to, you know, wreck the Second Amendment or to drastically change our our rights and freedoms. Well, even if the convention gets together and puts forth ridiculous ideas like that, well, that ridiculous idea then has to go to three-quarters of the states. It has to be ratified by three-quarters of the states in order for it to become an amendment to the Constitution. That's the fail-safe that was written into the U.S. Constitution to make sure that stupid, ridiculous amendments didn't get passed. Now, obviously, stupid, ridiculous amendments have been passed. Um, Prohibition, for example. 
We'll get to the amendments later, obviously. But I wanted to talk about that part in particular. The Convention of States project, it's, it's, a, it's controversial. There are some conservative folks like myself, I think it's a great idea. I think that our states have lost all of their power in our federal government with the passage of the 17th Amendment. And this would be a great way to send a message to our federal government that, hey, we the states and we the people are supposed to be in charge here. So get your act together or we'll just start proposing our own crap around you. (sighs) Anyway. Moving on, Article 6, all debts contracted and engagements entered into before the adoption of this Constitution shall be as valid against the United States under this Constitution as under the Confederation. That's important. It's throughout history, when governments are overthrown, it's pretty common for the new government to say, no, we're not paying the debts of the old government. This is one of the things, this was pretty contentious. This is something that was, a, that was argued about on the floor at the, convention of, uh, at the uh, Constitutional Convention. This is one of the places where Washington, George Washington, stood up and said, no, We need to honor these debts. We need to pay these debts. Yes, we're a new country or a new government, but we're the same country. We need to pay these debts. So that was pretty a a pretty big deal for the day. This Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. So the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. That's pretty clear. I think we all know that. We have one more paragraph in Article 6. We have Article 7 yet to go. And then, of course, the 27 amendments. Thanks for listening to the Liberty Lighthouse. Be sure to tune in next Saturday for your weekly dose of common sense and catch up on past episodes wherever you get your podcasts. I think maybe we can get it done in one more episode. What do you think? Come back next week in the Liberty Lighthouse. Until next week, protect your liberties. Once they're gone, there's no getting them back. God bless America. Thank you.